Father, indeed, may they forget the channel and see only him. God, help us to aspire not to make much of ourselves, but to make much of the Lord Jesus. Father, forgive us when we don't and when we fall short. But Lord, by your spirit, inspire in us lives that are totally consecrated to you. And so to that end, please open up our eyes that we might behold wonderful things from your law. Incline our hearts to your testimonies and not to dishonest gain. Establish your word to your servants as that which produces reverence for thee. We'll ask you to do it in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, Jesus had countless conflicts with religious leaders over the course of his ministry, sometimes with the Pharisees, sometimes with the Sadducees. But on one occasion, he found himself squaring off against the chief priests and the elders of the people. It was right after he had run the money changers out of the temple. He had walked into the temple and saw how they were defiling it with all of the money changing and selling and buying. And so he runs all of these guys out of the temple like he owns the place, because he does own the place. And then the chief priests and the elders are upset about this, and they try to challenge Jesus by asking him, by what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you this authority? They weren't actually trying to learn from Jesus. They were trying to trap Jesus. And so Jesus turns the tables on them, and then he asks them this. He says, what do you think? A man had two sons. He went to the first and said, son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind and went. And he went to the other son and said, to the, and said the same. And he answered, I will go, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said, the first. Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. The point of the parable was not to encourage children to disrespect their parents. The point of the parable is to show that it's not those who say they will obey the will of God who are followers of Christ. It's only those who do the will of God who are really followers of Christ. And Jesus says that these tax collectors and prostitutes who are now submitting to my will and coming into the kingdom are closer than you are. Jesus says it this way in the Sermon on the Mount. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me. You workers of lawlessness. If you say you're a Christian and make a profession of faith in Christ, but don't give a rip about following his commands, then your profession is a lie. And maybe you've deceived yourself into believing the lie. 
But it's no less a lie because you believe it. It's not merely what we say that reveals who we are, but what we do that reveals who we are. What do your deeds reveal about you? Do they reveal you to be a disciple of Jesus? The Bible says that the defining virtue of a Christian, the whole fulfillment of the law, in fact, is love. Do your deeds reveal a heart that is filled with the love of Christ? It's one thing to say that you love God and love your neighbor and your brother, but it's another thing to do it. If I told you that a tiny little drone has been following you around for the past month and making a video recording of everything that you're doing and saying, what would that footage reveal? It wouldn't be able to reveal what's going on in your heart. All that it would be able to reveal is what you've done for the last 30 days. Would there be any evidence on the recording to bear witness that you love God and love his people? Or would it show something else? The issue of authentic love versus fake love is at the heart of what Paul's concern is in the passage before us this morning. If you haven't already, I want you to open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. And our focus is going to be on verses 8 through 15. I mentioned in my last message on 1 Corinthians that beginning in chapter 8, Paul has turned the page in terms of the topic of discussion. He's now turning his attention to an offering that he's been taking up for the poor saints who are in Jerusalem. These Jews who had turned to Christ, were in dire need, and Paul and the other apostles wished for the Gentile churches to meet that need with an offering. In the first seven verses of this chapter, chapter 8, Paul invokes the generous example of the churches in Macedonia. And he says, I want you to know how much they gave, how generous they were, how great their contribution was, because they were giving out of their poverty. And even it's, it says that they gave beyond their ability, which means they gave till it hurt. And now Paul's turning to the Corinthians and he's saying to them, well, what are you going to do? And the heart of his concern is that the Corinthian believers would show the reality of their love in concrete terms. Will they love in word only or will they love in deed and in truth? And so Paul is going to speak to three different aspects of this, talking about what the proof of love is, the perseverance of love, and the fairness of love. The proof of love in verses 8 to 9, the pers perseverance of love in verses 10 to 12, and the fairness of love in verses 13 to 15. So the first item here is the proof of love. Everybody look at verse 8. Paul says, I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. Now, exactly what is Paul saying he's not giving them as a command? Well, he's referring back to verses 6 to 7, where he says that he sent Titus to complete what he started in collecting an offering from the Corinthians. Look at that. You can see that in verse 6. And at the end of verse 7, Paul says, See that you excel in this act of grace also. Meaning, see that you excel in giving this offering in the same way that you excel in spiritual gifts. 
As you excel in spiritual gifts, so also excel in the giving. But Paul says that he's not issuing a command in encouraging them to do this. Now, as an apostle, he, he could have commanded them to do this. He has that authority, but he expressly says that he's not doing that. Well, why? Well, the reason is because he doesn't want their giving to be under compulsion. If you look at chapter 9 and verse 7, Paul says there, Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion. For God loves a cheerful giver. So Paul's not trying to impose a law on their charitable giving. He wants it to flow freely, not against their will. He wants them to look at the example of the Macedonians, because you remember it says there in verse 8, he says, by the earnestness of others, those others are the Macedonians he just talked about in the first seven verses. He wants them to look at the example of the generosity of the Macedonians, and he wants them to give of their own will and volition. The, the NIV expresses this well. It says, I'm not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of the others, the Macedonians. One commentator explains it this way. He says, the apostle is not promoting a contest among rivals, but encouraging friendly imitation among equals. Why is Paul doing this? Well, because he wants to test and thereby to prove the sincerity of the Corinthians' love. It's one thing for the Corinthians to say that they love the poor saints in Jerusalem, but it's another thing to actually do it. It's one thing to say you want to give the offering. It's another thing to give the offering. And so the proof is in the pudding. 1 John chapter 3 says it like this, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. And we ought also to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does the, God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. And so this is the, the primary lesson in what Christian love is all about. If your love consists only in nice words, then your love is a lie. Real love will always express itself in concrete deeds of love. James chapter 2 says it this way, If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to him, Go in peace, be warm, and be filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? Well, the answer is, it's no good at all. It's good for nothing. So you have to test yourself here. Do you love in word only, or do you love in deed and in truth? If it's the latter, then your life is going to bear witness to love in concrete ways, not just in words. You will be giving of your time. You will be giving of your money. You'll be giving of other resources that you have because that's what love looks like. And so Paul reminds the Corinthians that the love he's calling them to display is the very same kind of love that they've received from Jesus. So look at verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty 
you might become rich. Paul's inviting his readers to consider how God loves his sinful and needy people. Can't you just think about it? Did God look down from heaven at our sinful and broken lives and say, hey, y'all, love you. Keep all my word. Be perfect. If you don't, you're going to hell. Good luck. Hope it works out. It's absurd. That's not how God loves. What God does is he sends himself on a rescue mission in the person of the eternal son of God. And the eternal son of God who was rich in his pre-existent and ineffable unity and fellowship and love within the Trinity, that son of God, the Bible says, who although he existed in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus went from ineffable glory to the ignominy of a Roman cross for us. He went from being in the bosom of the Father to being in the midst of sinners who hated him and spit on him and beat him and ultimately killed him. And why does he do it? Because of love. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. If anyone ever put hands and feet on love, it was Jesus, and they were suffering hands and feet. Jesus did not love in word only, but in deed and in truth. And he did it so that his wealth could transform our spiritual poverty into the wealth of his mercy through the blood of Christ. So though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich. As John says in 1 John, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. God's love is not mere sentiment, not mere words. It's a sending love, and he sent himself to change everything for us, to give everything for us. On Friday night, I was speaking at an event in Somerset, Kentucky, along with some other Christians who were speaking there. And uh, one of the other speakers was a guy from Lexington, Kentucky, named Blaine Adamson. Y'all familiar with that name? Uh, Blaine is a guy who owns this t-shirt print company um, called Hands-On Originals. I'd heard of this guy, but I'd never heard from him before. And uh, he told what his story was. He got his start making t-shirts in college for his fraternity. He got really good at it, and he made a business out of it. And somewhere along the way, the Lord saved him and changed his life uh, in and around his college years. And uh, he got, his business became really successful. He had all these huge accounts in Lexington, including with the University of Kentucky. But he had decided early on in his business that he would not print any shirts that celebrated messages that went against his Christian faith. He said one time he was asked by a church to create a t-shirt that looked like a Colonel Sanders bucket but instead of Colonel Sanders on the front, it was going to have Jesus' face and say something, I don't know, it wasn't finger-licking good, but something ridiculous. And he, said, he just said, I can't, I'm not going to make you a shirt with Jesus' face 
on a kid, you know. So he had turned down people before saying, I'm not going to do things that go against what I think is, is right. That was all fine until about 2012 when he got an order for T-shirts from the organizers of a gay pride march in Lexington. He politely told them that he wouldn't be able to take their order. He connected them with another store in town. But he said, you know, I'm not going to be able to take this order. Well, instead of taking their business elsewhere, they filed a complaint with the city, contacted the newspaper, and it was a short time later, Blaine found out about all of this because he goes for breakfast, like at McDonald's or something, and he looks at the front page of the newspaper on the newsstand, and there's his name and his company printed on the front page of the Lexington Herald Leader. And then right there, everything began to fall apart for he and his wife and their business. And for the next, they went through a period of time where their name and their company was dragged through the mud in, the, in media and on social media and in the press. The mayor of Lexington denounced them, denounced them publicly. He began losing all of his big accounts, including the ones at University of Kentucky. He tried to make statements to the press to explain himself, and then the press reports would take little snippets of what he said and press it together to make him look like an absolute, absolute moral monster. He was getting canceled before canceling was even a thing. And so he and his wife were just at a loss. They didn't even know what to do. They had all this press inquiry. They're just in their house, huddled up. He said they spent nights in there just kneeling and weeping and crying out to the Lord, what are we supposed to do? He has all these employees, and he's thinking, I'm about to have to lay off everybody because we're losing everything. But then Blaine said, he has a longer story. I'm not going to tell the whole thing. But one of the things he shared was that early on in their distress, one evening they get a knock at their door. And he opens the door, and there out before them are all these Christians standing there in his yard. And they're not all just from his church. They're just Christians from all over the community who've been watching him and what's been happening to his name uh, in that period. And they had just shown up to express their love and their support for him and to put their arms around them and to pray for them. And Blaine said, you couldn't imagine how much that meant to them in that moment when they felt like they were by themselves and losing everything and then all these brothers and sisters just show up. They send themselves to support them. It meant everything to them. That's what love does. Love shows up and meets the need where there's a need. And if need be, you send yourself. And so in verses 8 to 9, Paul's saying that the proof of love is in the pudding. In this case, it was in the giving. But the proof of love is always going to be proved in concrete deeds of mercy. But he also talks about the perseverance of love. Everybody look at verse 10. In this matter, I give my judgment. This benefits you, who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. Notice again that Paul's not issuing a command at this point, but he's giving what is his reliable apostolic wisdom about what's best for them. And he's noting that they had begun to, to give funds for this offering the previous year. 
which was likely the fulfillment of what we read about when we were studying 1 Corinthians. You remember in 1 Corinthians in chapter 16, he had told the Corinthians in verses 1 and 2, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside, store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. So the, the reality was is that the Corinthians had already begun giving to this offering uh, after he had previously asked him to give to it. But notice that Paul says that it wasn't merely their giving that began in the previous year, but also their desiring. If you look in verse 10, it says, A year ago you not only started this work, but also to desire it. Paul's drawing a connection between desire and deeds. It's a connection that's not unlike the connection we mentioned above between love and giving. It's the same principle. What we do flows out from what's inside of us. Our deeds flow from what we desire. And Paul says that the Corinthians began desiring to meet this need the previous year, but they had not yet given in a way that matched the intensity of the desire that they had initially expressed. And so he says in verse 11, So now finish doing this, doing it as well, so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. Notice, Paul wants them to give out of what they have. And that, that last line, I think, is probably, he's probably easing up on the Corinthians a little bit. He's already pointed to the example of the Macedonians. And he says the Macedonians gave not only what they were able, but they gave beyond what they were able and what anybody would have reasonably thought was required of them. And, and Paul is, I think, saying here, look, we're not, I'm not asking you to give like that. I'm just asking you to give out of your surplus, not out of your, your poverty like the Macedonians. Now, this is important because his expectation is not that they should give until they themselves are impoverished. Nor are they to get, but they're, they're supposed to give actually out of their, their surplus. And so in verse 12, he says, For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. So verse 12 explains what Paul meant at the end of verse 11, where he says each one should give out of what he has. Two things have to be true, according to verse 12, in order for this kind of gift to to be acceptable to God. So read what he says here, because when you give to the Lord, this is what needs to be true. He says, first of all, if the readiness is there, this means that you have to be giving of your own will and not be under compulsion. And in the Corinthians case, Paul says that they were more than willing. In fact, that term that's translated readiness might uh, better be rendered as like eagerness eagerness in desiring. Paul acknowledges that the Corinthians really were eager to give, and that makes their giving acceptable to the Lord. And then he says, secondly here, according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. This is encouraging no particular amount to be given to the offering, but simply an amount that's in keeping with one's income. That is, that's what's acceptable to the Lord. 
uh, one commentator, Colin Cruz, says it this way, the size of the gift is acceptable when it's in proportion to what one has. Uh, John Calvin, commenting on this text, he says it this way. He says, if from slender resources you present some small sum, your disposition is not less esteemed in the sight of God than in the case of a rich man's giving a large sum from his abundance. For the disposition is not estimated according to what you have not. That is, God does by no means require of you that you should contribute more than your resources allow. In this way, none are excused. For the rich, on the one hand, owe to God a larger offering. And the poor, on the other hand, ought not to be ashamed for their slender resources. End quote. God knows the heart and the purity and love of love and generosity. He knows that all of that can flow from both rich and poor, no matter what their resources. You know, imagine if the elders of Kenwood were to come to the church and were to say that there's a family in the church that is in a real great time of need. And we need the congregation to sort of band together and to give generously to meet this need. And so we, we take up a special offering. And at some point in giving this offering, two guys make their way to the uh, offering box there at the back of the church. And they both drop in an envelope. And they both drop in the same amount. They both drop in an envelope that has $50 in it. But the first guy has $1,000 in his bank account, while the second guy has $100,000 in his. Now, they're both cheerfully giving. They're giving with a good conscience. Everything's fine. I'm not saying anybody's in sin here. But honestly, I mean, who gives more? I mean, they're giving the same amount, but who's giving more? All other things being equal... In the eyes of heaven, you can tell who gave more. Neither of them were obligated or commanded to give anything. They are both cheerfully and gladly giving from their own free will and they're under no compulsion. Who gave more? It's not hard to figure out. God, God certainly knows. But let's say that this need from this family is really great. The family needs sustained assistance from the church for over a year. And let's say... Neither of those two guys ever gives another penny again. And let's say maybe the whole church has kind of dropped off from giving to the need. What might we say as elders to the church as the months pass on? We might stand up again and say, brothers and sisters, this need is ongoing. I know you were all eager to give at the beginning. Now complete your giving to match the eagerness that you had at the start. That's exactly what Paul is saying to them. And it's really just another way of saying, renew your eagerness and give freely again. It's not putting anybody under compulsion. It's stirring up warm-hearted love and saying, give from love again. The truth is, is that as long as we have a church, there will be financial needs that require attention. There will be ministries to fund. There will be salaries to pay. There will be buildings to keep up, missionaries to send out, and on and on and on with what it takes to have a congregation that's fruitful and flourishing for, this, for the glory of Christ. That means for you, you can't flag in your eagerness and willingness to give to the Lord's work. You need to complete what you started, and your commitment needs to be persevering. 
Your love needs to be persevering, which means your giving needs to be persevering. It also means that you need to be so large-hearted for your brothers and sisters that you are more than willing to do your part to meet a need when there is one. You don't give to be seen by men. You just give because you love. And your father who sees you giving in secret will reward you when you give. So Paul talks about the proof of love. He talks about the perseverance of love. But then finally, he also talks about the fairness of love. Everybody look at verse 13. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need so that their abundance may supply your need that there may be fairness. Now, hopefully you saw that word fairness mentioned twice here. And if you, um, another way that you could translate that term fairness is just to, is to give it the word equality. Some of you out there are shaking right now. And um, equality, what are you, some kind of a socialist? Paul is not calling for the church authorities to, provide, to preside over some kind of a socialist-style redistribution of wealth among congregants so that you know, every church has always the same amount of money and resources. We know that's the case because Paul has already mentioned the extreme poverty of the Macedonians. How much money is he directing towards them right now? None. It's, you know, he's seeing a need in Jerusalem. He's trying to meet an acute need there. He's not trying to redistribute so that everybody has, you know, a absolutely equal resources every, everywhere. So it's not a zero-sum game. That's not how you want to read this. It's not a zero-sum game financially. Nor is Paul calling for people simply to transfer the totality of the church's wealth to another church so that now the ones who give are in the same financial straits as those who receive the gift. Um, that wouldn't make any sense either here. So he's clarifying by what he means by fairness or equality in verse 14. Look again at verse 14. Your abundance at the present time should supply their need so that their abundance may supply your need that there may be fairness or equality. So notice there, Paul speaks not only of the Corinthians' abundance supplying the needs of the poor saints in Jerusalem, he speaks also of the poor saints in Jerusalem having an abundance supplying the Corinthians' need. So the question is, is what does this mean? Now, now some people interpret this completely financially as if Paul were saying that if the Corinthians give to the Jerusalem church now, at some point in the future, the Jerusalem church might be able to give back to them in the future, like it's some sort of you know, financial investment that will bring dividends at some point in, in the future. I, I think that that's not the right interpretation. I don't think that that's what Paul's talking about when he says, um, your abundance might redound to an abundance being given back to you. And the reason for that is because of what Paul says about this very same offering in Romans chapter 15. In Romans 15 and verse 25, Paul says this, At present, however, I'm going to Jerusalem bringing aid to the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia, by the way, the Corinthians would have been in Achaia, for Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. For they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. 
For if the Gentiles come to share in their, Jerusalem's, spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. So it's clear that the exchange is not material blessings for material blessings, but material blessings for spiritual blessings. In other words, the Corinthians had already drunk from the rich root of Israel by partaking of the promises made to Abraham and now fulfilled through Christ. Since the Corinthians had received such wealth from Jerusalem, of course they should share what material wealth they have with the poor saints who are still there beleaguered in Jerusalem. So don't think of socialist redistribution. This is not just a zero-sum financial game going on here. When you, when you hear Paul calling for equality, he's using actually this word for equality is the same word that Paul uses in Colossians 4 when he's calling for equality between masters and slaves. It's clear that he wasn't calling for socialist redistribution there. He was calling for giving equal justice to all. Similarly, I think Paul is calling for an equal attention to be given to the needs of all to see that all of the needs are equally attended to and met. And so Paul calls as an example for this. Uh, in verse 15, he says this, As it is written, Whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. And you'll notice that portion of the verse in quotation marks because he's quoting from Exodus 16 where we read about God providing manna from heaven for his people. But what do we see there when we read in Exodus 16? We see the children of Israel, they would all go out every morning, and they would look outside their tents, and God's provided for his people. Everybody, there's manna on the ground, and the people could eat bread because of what God gave for them. And the text says in Exodus 16, 17, the sons of Israel did so. Some gathered much and some little. They weren't all gathering the same amounts. But everyone ended up with what they needed and no one had any lack. The Lord provided. Even though they all had brought in different quantities of manna, they all had no lack. And I think that that is the real lesson here. John Calvin says it this way. He says, I acknowledge indeed that there is not enjoined upon us an equality of such a kind as to make it unlawful for the rich to live in any degree of greater elegance than the poor, but an equality is to be observed thus far, that no one is to be allowed to starve, and no one is to hoard his abundance at the expense of defrauding others. The poor man's homer will be coarse food and a spare diet. The rich man's omer will be coarse food, will, a rich man's omer will be more abundant of a portion. It is true according to his circumstances, but at the, the same time, in such a way that they live temperately and are not wanting to others, which means people are going to have different means. It's not a redistribution of wealth so that everybody always is equal. But it is that among the people of God, it's a distribution of love that nobody is in need. So we're not called to a socialist utopia, but we are called to a love utopia. Something like we read about in Acts chapter 2. You all remember what it was like 
When the Spirit first fell on God's people and he's forming this new community, what were these people doing? The Bible says, So then those who had received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls, and they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer, meaning they were gathering and doing exactly what we are doing right here this morning. They were devoted to that. But that coming together for worship had hands and feet on it when they left because it said everyone kept feeling a sense of awe and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. And day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. What marks a thriving, spirit-filled community of faith? It is a looking after the needs of everyone in the congregation. Now, was everyone selling all of their possessions and getting rid of everything so that every Christian divested himself of all property? No, that's not what happened. Uh, it's not what was happening at all. Some people did still have property. That wasn't the point. The point was is that they were divesting enough, getting funds enough to take care of the needs that were among them. And so all of this means that God calls us to be eager and willing to meet the needs of the saints and to do so freely and eagerly, not under compulsion, and to do it because of love. We love because he has loved us first, and that love is going to be expressed in concrete terms. There's going to be a proof of love, there's going to be a perseverance of love, and there's going to be a fairness of love that all the needs are equally attended to and in proportion. So it's not what you're forced to do that reveals what you really love. It's what you freely and cheerfully give to that reveals what you love. If we were to pull out the video footage from the drone and look at what you're doing, what would it reveal about what you love? What you're doing with your money, what would it reveal about what it is you love? That tells more about us than what we say sometimes. Listen, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, and you sort of know that, um, the Bible teaches us that all people have sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God. And that all people includes me and it includes you. Which means you, your greatest need this morning is not financial. And our greatest hope from you this morning is not financial. We don't want your money. We want you to know the gospel. And the Bible says that God gave everything that you needed to meet your greatest need. And your need was to be saved from your sins. Your sins earned you an eternity in hell, but God poured out what would have taken you an eternity in hell to endure, he poured it out on his son when he died on the cross. And then God raised him up three days later and promises eternal life to anyone who believes in him. You can't earn this or buy this or purchase this. 
You just have to receive this freely by faith as a gracious and merciful gift of love from the Father. The Bible says God so loved the world that he gave, and he gave his son for you. If you are not trusting Christ, you need to believe in him even now. Let me pray for you. Father, I pray that you would use your word to sanctify your people and to save sinners. Lord, I pray that you would reorder our loves so that we are clearly aiming our lives and our treasures towards your kingdom and your righteousness. I pray for anyone who's clinging too tightly to their stuff such that they are making an idol of it that they would release and that your lordship would come to bear. I pray that for me. I pray that for everyone in this room. I also pray, Lord, that you would make us wise. I pray that you would give us our share of smart people who know how to make money and who become awesome givers. And I pray that you'd give us our share of people who are gifted and going and doing other things for the gospel and that you'd send them forth. Lord, give us your gifts in due proportion and help us to use them for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.